Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. So as we start thinking about our gardens for next season, we may not just be looking at fruits and veggies and herbs. Many of us like to plant our landscape and the areas surrounding our vegetable gardens with plants that are beautiful to look at. Maybe they're for cutting flowers and bringing into the house, or maybe they're just for some added color and beauty while we spend our time outside, or maybe just for curb appeal. Unfortunately, there are many species that get planted that are considered invasive in our areas. No matter where you are, it's likely that your region has plants that were introduced from another continent or even just another area of your country that have escaped cultivation and gone on to propagate almost uncontrolled in the wild. We regard these plants as invasive species. And today I'm going to dig into what defines an invasive plant species, why they are a problem, what we can do to prevent the spread of them. And then I'll talk about five of the most popular ones here in North America that are still being sold at nurseries and what alternatives you can choose to plant instead. Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I want to pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering, and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. So let's start with the understanding that invasive species aren't limited to plants. An invasive species can be any organism that is either introduced to a new region or was already there and maybe something happens to reduce its competition. And it thereby becomes overpopulated and negatively alters its new or existing environment. Sometimes their spread can have beneficial aspects, but in most cases, Invasive species adversely affect the habitat and the bioregion that they're in, and they cause ecological, environmental, and even economic damage. So one example, an animal example here in Missouri is carp, both silver and big head carp. They were originally imported to the U.S. to clean algae from tanks in commercial fish farms and sewage treatment plants, but they escaped confinement during flooding, and now They've spread throughout the state's rivers and are now entering lakes. Not only do these carp eat the native fish food at an alarming rate, they can get to be as big as 50 pounds and jump as high as 10 feet out of the water, which, of course, can cause a lot of damage to people and their boats out on the water. An example of a native animal species that turned invasive is the purple sea urchin. It's native to the California coast, and it used to be kept under control by the California sea otter, which eats the sea urchin. But since the sea otter has been overhunted, the sea urchin numbers have escalated to the point which has decimated natural kelp beds along the northern California coast. That, in turn, causes all kinds of problems on down the food chain. So with these animal species, the carp was an introduced species, And the sea urchin is a native species, but both are viewed as invasive because they upset the natural balance of the region they are in. 
the same exact thing can be seen in plant species. Exotic plants from faraway lands may be beautiful, but there is no way to stop them from escaping the confines of your garden or your landscape through the dispersion of seeds or by underground rhizomes. Once this happens, it can have a real and lasting impact on the plant and animal species of the area and their ability to survive. Can this introduction from area to another area happen naturally? Absolutely. It happens slowly over time. But an organism can migrate into long-established ecosystems and muck up the works for sure. Oftentimes, the ecosystem shifts and adjusts, and other times it can be a devastating change. But human activities have greatly increased the rate and the scale of these invasions, and the outcome has been much more devastating than any natural migration. Many of the invasive transplants that we find in the wilderness of North America originally hailed from Europe and Asia, and they were brought over by settlers who just wanted to bring their favorite plants with them to their new home. Now, in more recent years, it's been plants brought in from other regions that were supposed to be purely for decorative purposes in landscapes or even those that were bred for their looks and supposedly sterile that escaped cultivation and are now causing a myriad of problems. The calorie Bradford pear is one example of that. So how does this happen? Plant species can often have an easy time becoming naturalized in an area that they've been moved to. If the climate is similar to where they came from initially, or they've been selectively bred to be more hardy, well, they can often thrive in their new environment. Sometimes this is so much so that they grow more quickly, they reproduce more heartily, and they even alter their growth habits to better suit their new location. This sounds like a great thing for our landscape plants. We want plants that are hardy and grow well in our gardens, but this also means that the plant can spread more quickly. And if there are no natural predators to a plant, whether it's an insect, an animal, or a disease, then it can spread exponentially. And when these things happen, this new naturalized version of the plant can begin to outcompete the native plants in an area. And remember, not all plants that become invasive are from another continent. You can have a plant here in the U.S. that was simply transported from one part of the country to another and have it become aggressive or even noxious in its new home. So what do I mean by noxious? There are some invasive plant species that get put into a special category. These plants are classified as noxious weeds because they're plants that are particularly injurious to either humans or agriculture or wildlife and sometimes all three. They may produce significant allergens or be toxic through contact or by ingestion, Um, or they may reproduce at such a rate that they can't be controlled, and they cause such damage to natural ecosystems that they threaten to cause species to go extinct. Invasive species are among the main drivers of the loss of biodiversity globally, creating monocultures that cause native plants, insects, or animals to go extinct or they become hybridized through cross-pollination between related plants in the wild and become even more aggressive. This is why it's so important to research the plants that you want to put into your garden or your landscape and to make sure that they're a part of your local biome and they aren't considered invasive or even noxious in your area. 
Now, in most states in the U.S., the local conservation service usually will have a list of what is considered noxious in your area. It is actually illegal in most places to purposefully plant anything that is classified as noxious. And additionally, landowners can be under legal obligation to try to prevent the spread of noxious plants. For example, here in Missouri, we have a problem with a particular type of purple thistle. It spreads like wildfire. It takes over pastures. It causes problems with livestock and with farm equipment. It's a total mess. Landowners are legally obligated to dig up and remove or to otherwise prevent this particular thistle from going to seed and spreading. And I can tell you it's a job. Um, I know that different provinces in Canada have noxious weed orders and have their own weed control acts. Australia, New Zealand, the EU, and the UK all have some sort of laws against transporting and cultivating invasive species. So this is not new. Many of these rules and laws go back to at least the early 1970s. Now, sadly, there are plenty of plant nurseries and online stores that will happily sell you the seeds or starts of invasive plants. If it's not explicitly against the law to do so in your area, any plant can be sold as an ornamental or even for edible production. And like I said, there are those that have been specifically bred to supposedly be sterile so they won't escape cultivation, only to adapt and prove the plant breeders wrong and cause havocs. Now, the prime example of this is a calorie pear cultivar called Bradford. So Pyrus caloriana Bradford is one you likely have seen before if you live in zone five or warmer in the U.S. It's a spring flowering tree that has been planted all over as a fast-growing landscape specimen. It grows up to 30 to 50 feet tall and 20 to 30 feet wide and has a wide, erect, very branchy canopy that is the first thing to bloom in most places in the spring. It's very showy with its all-white blooms because it blooms before it leafs out. So all you see are these trees loaded with these brilliant white blooms. Now, the original species plant is native to China, Japan, Korea, and Vietnam. The Bradford cultivar was grown from seed that was purchased in China in 1919, and it was introduced as a cultivar by the USDA, no less, in 1963. Bradford was supposed to be sterile, but they readily cross-pollinate with other calorie cultivars to produce viable fruit, which are then eaten by the birds, and the birds spread the seeds. The seeds readily take hold and spread rapidly from there because the species is very adaptable. There are plenty of other cultivars of calorie pear that have been bred since then. Some are even hardy to like zone four, but there is a, a push specifically to keep people from planting them in landscapes because of their tendency to naturalize. I know South Carolina already has it on their invasive plant pest species list, and I'm sure there's other states that are following suit. I can tell you, we didn't have a single calorie pear tree on our 40 acres when we moved here 10 years ago. And about five years ago, I saw the first one pop up in one of our fields. The next year, I noticed about a half a dozen of them. And now I've lost count of how many of them are out there on the property. The same thing with Japanese honeysuckle, which is even more invasive and more devastating in our area. They just spread. So, what other very popular garden and landscape plants are now considered to be invasive in many areas? 
I'll give you a few very popular examples for North America, which many of us may already have in our landscapes, and then I'll list a few alternatives that are just as stunning, but just not invasive. I'll also give you the scientific name of the invasive plants, because they can go by different names in different regions, and the scientific name is the best way to be sure we're talking about the same plant. Now, keep in mind, if you're outside the U.S. or Canada, you'll need to do a little research into what is considered invasive in your area and what alternatives are suggested before you start populating your landscape with new plants. So the first popular invasive landscape plant we'll talk about is butterfly bush. The scientific name for that is Budlegia davidii. Butterfly bush was introduced to North America around 1900, originally coming from Japan and China. It has since escaped cultivation because it readily self-seeds and spreads on the wind, and it's already classified as a noxious weed in Oregon and Washington State. You cannot plant it there. The appeal of butterfly bush in the landscape is that it produces really fragrant, showy, branching clusters of tiny flowers. As far as being a butterfly bush, it does provide a source of nectar for pollinators and it attracts adult butterflies but it's actually detrimental to the butterfly life cycle overall. So although the adult butterflies will feed on the flower nectar and they are attracted to it, the larvae or caterpillars cannot use the leaves of the plant as a food source. So it doesn't support the entire life cycle of the butterfly like native plants do, which makes it harmful to an ecosystem when the butterfly bush begins to displace the native plants that those caterpillars need to survive. So instead of butterfly bush, try planting common milkweed or any milkweed that is native to your area. You can also try button bush, uh, joe pie weed, or butterfly weed. Now the second invasive ornamental we see frequently is burning bush, Euonymus allotus, also known as a winged Euonymus or a winged spindle tree. This bush is beautiful in the fall. They're a deciduous shrub that's leaves turn a just brilliant scarlet color in the fall before they drop their leaves. I've always admired them, but they spread like crazy. They're a Northeastern Asian native, and they were brought to the States in the mid-1800s. By this point, they've naturalized to at least 21 states, and they pop up in forests and fields and along roadsides, and they crowd out the native plants anywhere they take hold. There are some equally stunning alternatives to burning bush, and those include the eastern wahoo, which is another euonymus, um, euonymus astropurpurus. Um, you can also try red chokeberry or dwarf fothergilla. Another popular one is Chinese wisteria, wisteria sinensis. This one is a really stunning vine that has all these bluish purple flowers that just drape off of it in the spring. And they vine up structures and they get really huge. And just like any wisteria plant, they require a lot of maintenance. The Chinese wisteria, however, is particularly aggressive and it grows much more quickly than other types. So not only can it overgrow its space very rapidly, and it can cause damage to structures in the landscape it was planted in, once it escapes into the wild, it kills native trees and shrubs by choking them or girdling them. And then they continue to climb until it's blocking out all the light from reaching the understory plants. So it kills them off too. You can find 
varieties of wisteria that are more native to your region, like American wisteria or Kentucky wisteria, if you really want to have one in your landscape, just avoid the Chinese wisteria. And so an interesting one to me is Norway maple, Acer platinoides. Now, this one was brought to North America from Europe way back in the 1750s, and it's now dominating forests all along the northern parts of the U.S. and into Canada. Originally, it was planted because it's tolerant of drought and heat and air pollution, and it can thrive in a very wide range of soils, which sounds like perfect conditions for a plant to become an invasive, right? Norway maple is a fast grower and it readily reseeds itself. It also has a shallow root system, so it takes up a lot of topsoil space and it has a very large canopy. This means that very little can grow beneath it. It blocks the sunlight and it starves the understory plants for moisture, so it quickly overwhelms the habitat and creates its own forest monoculture. This also directly threatens the survival of native maple trees because deer and other wildlife avoid eating the leaves of the Norway maple, and so they eat the native species instead, which means the Norway maple spreads even further, and the already choked out native maples are further destroyed. It's a really bad combination. So if you're in North America and you're looking to plant maple trees, avoid the Norway maple and go for a sugar maple or a red maple. Next on the list is Japanese honeysuckle, Lanacera japonica. Like I mentioned earlier, I have firsthand experience with this one. It looks just like one would expect of a classic honeysuckle bush with its white or yellow tubular flowers. They bloom from June through October, at least in our area, and they are lovely to look at, but they spread like crazy, and I can't overstate that. We didn't have a single one when we moved to the farm. And the first year I saw one, I thought it was lovely and I thought it was native. We used to have honeysuckle when I lived in Virginia. And I actually planted a pink honeysuckle here in the backyard to kind of remind me of those ones from my childhood. So when a yellow one popped up nearby on the farm, I thought it was cool. Until the next year when I realized there were about a dozen more scattered around and then they tripled the next year. There isn't a corner of the farm now that doesn't have Japanese honeysuckle invading, and yet that one pink one I planted is still just that one pink bush. The Japanese honeysuckle was initially planted in New York in 1806, and it now covers vast tracts of land from the eastern seaboard all the way here to Missouri. So if you want a honeysuckle bush or two, try planting trumpet honeysuckle or even go with a purple passion flower as an alternative. There are plenty more examples of invasive decorative plants like golden bamboo, winter creeper, English ivy, all kinds of plants that are either better served to just stay as house plants or should be substituted completely with something else in your landscape. The key here is to do your research before planting anything, even if you get it at a local nursery. Just because it's for sale doesn't mean it won't contribute to the undermining of your local native habitats. Now, your best resources are your local extension agency and university websites. Um, local grow native organizations can give you good information. Local gardening clubs and Facebook group members will also have good lists of what is considered invasive in your area and what is best avoided. 
Hopefully this gave you a little bit more insight into what an invasive species is and why we should understand the nature of what we're planting in our gardens and landscapes before we decide to plant it. Do your research as best you can and know that there are plenty of alternatives to choose from. For my listeners who are celebrating the American Thanksgiving this week, I hope you have a wonderful day full of gratitude and good food. And for my Native American listeners who are observing a national day of mourning on the same day, I see you. And I will leave a link to the live stream of the gathering in the show notes. Have a fabulous week, folks, and I will talk to you again next week. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and I will talk to you again soon.